I'm Tony Tardio. Hello and welcome to Darren Hinch's That's Life podcast. A podcast where we talk about the big stories of the past, the big stories of today, through the prism of Hinch's six decades in the media. On today's episode, Hinch once threatened, as a joke, to write a book called Famous People Who Have Met Me. In this podcast, he reminisces about some of them. The Dalai Lama, Princess Diana, Sylvester Stallone, Lauren Bacall, Elizabeth Taylor, Sophia Loren, Jackie Weaver, and more. Darren Hinch, welcome to another episode of your podcast. Thank you, Tony. You've had a a remarkable life. You've met many, many people who would be in awe of the people that you've met who they know on television and film and wherever. It's it's funny, you know, because I once, as a joke, wrote that I was going to write a book. I was going to call it Famous People Who Have Met Me. (laughs) <laughs> it was a joke it was never going to happen so there you go but I, I have yes I have met a lot of people throughout the decades and your story about Bridget Bardot well, tell us is, about that this one this gave me an idea um, years when I was researching oh, decades ago now I was researching uh, my second novel called uh, Death in Paradise and the, the lead character Monique Monet is based on Bridget Bardot um, and uh, so instead of BB, it's MM, right? And uh, it was a, a story about the Rainbow Warrior and the sinking of the Muraroa atom tests and all that. And it was a thriller as well, some murders in there. Um, but for research, I actually went to Saint-Tropez, where she lives, still lives, um, and she's a great animal liberationist, so I've admired her for that side of her character for a long time. Um, and I went to Saint-Tropez and knocked on the door hoping to... Uh, meet and chat with Bridget Bardot but she wasn't home um, but my other connection I've never met Bridget Bardot but my other connection with Bridget Bardot was that when I was about 14 I guess I managed to lie about my age and sneak into a Bridget Bardot 16 and over movie called uh, <laughs> one of her first films called And God Created Woman and that was when Bridget Bardot was regarded as the sex symbol in the world and and it was an extraordinary extraordinary life for her, so um, so that was that. But I, over the years, look, you meet a lot of people. Some of them disappoint you, they do, uh, and some are more than others. The, the worst, you know, I've interviewed hundreds of people. The worst interview probably I ever did, and I almost walked out. It was a pre-record, and it was with Harrison Ford. It was dreadful. Um, He's promoting very early, I guess, the Indiana Jones movie. He obviously didn't want to be there. He didn't want to help. It was almost monosyllabic. And I thought to myself, I thought to myself, I knew that I'd done some research that before he was a, um, an actor, he was a carpenter. And I thought, how appropriate. He's got a bloody wooden head, you know. <laughs> it was different. I mean, you think, well, you know, if you're not going to, you're, you're on a promotional tour, we're trying to sell your movie, at least give something. I mean, I recall once I almost missed out on an interview with, I think, probably one of the most beautiful women in the world, and that was Sophia Loren. And they said to me, uh, yeah, well, you can do an interview. You've got to go to a hotel and interview her there. And I thought, she's pushing a book or a perfume or something or a movie. Um, you know, I was number one on radio, so I could afford to be a bit arrogant. And I just said, no, 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 no. no. This, is, this is a radio interview in my studio. You come to my studio. And they said, she won't do it. I said, all right, well, we lose the interview. And, 
So, she did it. So she did come into it. the she, studio. And this most amazingly beautiful woman well, in a red dress walked in. Yeah. I actually met her when she came out to Melbourne uh, 2015, I, and I interviewed her myself, oh, okay. actually. Uh, how did you find her, Sophia? I, I, found, I, I, I found her very, very um, outgoing and, uh, and and fine, you know. I think there's a, there's a bit of mystery about her all the time. I'm sure there's another life there we didn't know about because I think she was married to Carlo Ponti from memory. She was, who was a lot older than a lot her. Older she her, grew yeah. up in a very um, – I've actually been to the part of Naples where, wow. where she grew up. And, of course, her sister married uh, Mussolini's son, oh. Benito Mussolini's son. So – uh, you know, she's got all that Second World War sort of uh, mm. family history uh, as as well. What year was that that you I can't met remember. her? I can't, remember. Uh, I can't remember what year it was. And do you know what she was coming out to do? Or? No, I, look, I, I have a feeling it wasn't a movie. I have a feeling it was either a perfume or a book. Uh, That's my gut feeling from way back then. It was very early in my 3RW career. Ironically, and she's aged incredibly well, which could not be said about Mae West, I must admit. Now, Mae West, <laughs> after whom they named the life jacket. Uh, sorry, yeah, that's true, the Mae West. Um, she was making a movie called Myra Breckenridge years ago, and it was we were at a function, a press conference at the at the um, uh, at the Plaza Hotel, I think it was in New York, and she had so much face work. I reckon she, every time she sat down, her mouth flew open. You know? She she looked like she looked like she should be a Madame Tussauds. It was quite bizarre because to promote the image of May West being a sex symbol, they had all these sort of young like like muscle-bound men in, in briefs all sort of be standing around the place, etc. It was it was quite bizarre. And the only other the other major star I guess I interviewed at a hotel, uh, and this would again this would be the Waldorf Astoria, were Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. Um, she was exquisitely beautiful and it's true she had these amazing eyes. Uh, it's true. But we didn't know all the stories then about how wild their life was. It was a very turbulent relationship and uh, a, a lot of booze was going down there. And, and they're both sitting there sipping very heavily from a couple of uh, Water for Story coffee cups, which I'm sure didn't have coffee in them. <laughs> so, anyway, but he and he did have those stentorian tones. I mean, he spoke an amazing Shakespearean way. Uh, and, and, of course, they were the, the two superstars of the era to the extent to the extent that at one stage um eddie fisher dumped his girl next door wife debbie fisher mother of kerry from star wars he dumped debbie fisher who was like the girl next door i mean she was revered in america and eddie fisher dumped her and ran off with elizabeth taylor uh which caused a hell of a stir and why i mention it is it another example of that what it meant was um, when Jackie Kennedy, after John's long after John's death, uh, I mean John Kennedy, she married Aristotle Onassis, and we all believed he married him because he had money, he had the island of Scorpios, a private island where her kids and her could be safe from paparazzi and would-be assassins and kidnappers. So I think that contributed to her reasons. And he wasn't state. the most attractive man, Darren. No, he wasn't. And he was, at the time, having a hot and heavy, lengthy affair with Maria Callas, the opera singer. Well, that surprises me I think, me that, went well. on, I think that went on as, <laughs> even during his marriage. But anyway, at one stage, Bobby Kennedy, who was still alive, said um, to Jackie, you can't marry him because he was under dubious... His Greek shipping line was under some dubious um, deals and things. And she said, you can't marry him. You know, America will never forgive you. And she said... 
America will forgive me anything after what I've been through unless I run off with Eddie Fisher. <laughs> Did you ever meet Jackie Odessis? Uh, no. And this is a very painful story because I was covering the America's Cup one year. Uh, I can't remember which one it was exactly. And uh, I was uh, invited out. My, my wife, Lana, Lana, her first wife, her auntie was Auntie Eileen Hardy who is the mother of Jim Hardy, the Australian skipper at the America's Cup. And so we had an in with the Hardys. And uh, Kerry Packer um, had, a, had, a, had a boat and, uh, uh, from, his, from, his, from Frank. And, uh, and uh, I was invited with Auntie Eileen to go on the boat. With, on Kerry's boat. Now, was that Gretel 1 or Gretel 2 that'd or be Gretel, something like that? That'll be Gretel 1, I think, or 2. Right. I'm not sure. Um, uh, anyway, I was invited and I'd been out once, but on this day, it was a, a Saturday right, a race and there's a chance the race wouldn't go on because if the wind didn't happen, they, you'd go out there, sit there for two hours in the, in, the, in the doldrums and flash around and come back in again. And it was a Saturday, so I'd already filed for the Sun-Herald uh, the Sunday paper so I had no paper to file for and I thought oh you know what's the point I'll stay I'll stay on shore Richard Schleeman who worked for Australian Associated Press who later became my producer on radio decades later I've met him Richard uh, yes um, Fly as he used to be nicknamed he decided he would go on the boat and he did and on that boat for five hours he was there with another guest, and her name was Jackie Kennedy Onassis. <laughs> and did he gloat when he got back to shore? And I just elected not to go. So, another name I see here that you had some connection with is Lauren Bacall. Oh, uh, well, Lauren Bacall. Uh, that was weird. I used to do a show, a radio show, once a week, a bit like Desert Island Discs. And I get some star to come along and pick five or six songs. And then talk stories around them, you know, and it's, it's an old, fa- an old-fashioned syndrome, and it works very well. And when I'm, I was told that whatever I did, I was not allowed to mention Humphrey Bacall, Humphrey Bogart rather, Humphrey Bogart. So of course, in the middle of the interview, I said, "Why have you instructed people in interviews like this not to mention Humphrey Bogart?" And being very clever, she drew us up and said. That's rubbish, I did not, and dumped it all on her staff. So it was obviously, they wouldn't tell you don't, don't, don't mention the war unless the star had told them to. And uh, so and then she chatted away about him at great length, you know, and the fact that, and a spin-off from that is that the actual African queen, the actual boat, yes. uh, uh, which Catherine Hepburn and, uh, and, and uh, Humphrey Bogart are in the movie, the African queen, um, and I, I named my boat on the Yarra uh, the Johnny Mathis. It's a very, very politically incorrect joke. I named it the Johnny Mathis because it looked like the African Queen. <laughs> and Johnny Mathis is a very gay singer. Anyway, I, they brought the African Queen to Australia, the real one. And they um, thought I had this great interest in the African Queen. And so I've got a picture of me sailing the real African Queen up the Yarra. And it was much smaller than you ever dream it was. It was fantastic. And my other Lauren McCall story is that when Darren James and my producer Paul Barber and I um, would travel interstate or overseas, we had a little game we'd play, like uh, which was like um, you name names of somebody who was a lookalike uh, for for a person you knew. Um, and I remember once we we're in China, and to, to pick where the person was walking towards you, you'd say, 
10 to 2, you know, or quarter past 1, say person look in that direction, and you say, 10 to 2, Bert Newton. 10 to 2, Bert Newton. And the other guys would look at him and say, good call, good call, or not a good call. <laughs> and we played this game all over the world, okay? One day, we were in, um, in Alice Springs chasing the much-vaunted and overrated Halley's Comets, which looked like a fuzzy tennis ball whizzing past, and that was it. Um, and we're walking through a hotel in Alice Springs, and, uh, and I said, Lauren Bacall, Lauren Bacall, five past one. And as we walked past, they said, good call. And as I walked past, she said, hello, it was Lauren Bacall. Because <laughs> I'd interviewed her the previous Sunday. And she was with um, uh, uh, the Morley, Robert Morley's son, who was a, uh, an entrepreneur, and he'd brought her out to Australia. Darren, tell me about uh, when you met Jackie Weaver, because... Uh you know, other than your mum, she was pro- she's probably been one of the constants oh, of she's, your life. She's been a soulmate for, for many, many years. I first met her when I was editor of The Sun in about 1975. And uh, she we had some awards. And uh, we had the Sun Award, Angel Awards. And her movie, Caddy, had just come out. with, And we I think we gave her an award. So I met her then. Uh, I didn't know her. I mean, she was, we were both involved with other people. And uh, years later, that'd be 1975, about seven years later, by then I was in, Sydney, in Melbourne doing, um, doing uh, 3AW mornings, and I owned a restaurant called Sardi's. And Miss Weaver had a, was in Melbourne doing uh, playing our song, a uh, great musical, and she played the role more than 500 times. And after the opening night, I'd arrange with the producers to have the opening night party um, at, um, at my restaurant, Sardi's, a theatrical restaurant. And so that's where I met her again then. And uh, then years later, I was, she was actually living with a guy called Phil Davis, a journo who I'd worked against in the Sydney days when he was on Daily Mirror and I was on the Sydney Sun in the 60s. And then when I finally did, took the Hinch program to Sydney, he was the producer in Sydney of the uh, executive producer for Willisey and then came on board for us. So our lives kept interconnecting. And then when she came down here to uh, Melbourne, I remember taking her to, uh, inviting her to a party, a concert and a party for Peter Allen and Liza Minnelli. And I'd gone with, I didn't invite, no, she was at the party and I went with somebody else, just a friend, not a, not a romantic involvement. And after the show, um, I said uh, Jackie was going to go to a, a party at the Underground and uh, for them. And I said, yeah, I'd like to come for a while. Um, and my partner said, oh, I don't want to go there. So I said, well, do you mind if we go? She said, not at all. So Jackie and I went off together to the Underground and it sort of um, started from there. That's and, where the uh, romance began, isn't the it? That's where the romance began. And she always said, that uh, after I dropped her off that night, with nothing happening, dropped her off where she was staying in, in the city. And she said, years later, she said, you promised to take me to the pictures and you never did. <laughs> <laughs> so, and from there it grew. And ironically, ironically, years and years later, my first story for Sunday night was to fly to LA and, uh, and interview um, Jackie Weaver. And, uh, and it was quite a, Amazing because I, I knew she was doing well in Hollywood and she had two Academy Award nominations, but I, I didn't realise how, how much she was until um, I'm at a dinner ta- a lunch table 
with um, Bradley Cooper and a guy called Robert De Niro. We're all at the same table and we're having lunch. So, oh. Sorry, you were at this table yes, yes, with, Jackie with these the, guys yeah. sitting around the table yeah. and Jackie Weaver. Yes, and I'd just flown in that, that day from Australia. And it felt very surreal for me to suddenly land in LA. She said, quick, we're going to lunch in an hour's time, she said to me. And I didn't realise who it was all with and what it was. Some Australian award, some awards night day. And I turn up there and I suddenly realise she's big deal here. Because he was yelling out, Jackie Weaver, Jackie Weaver. I love you, Jackie Weaver. And the, the next night, adding, adding to all this, um, it was the director's night, like the Oscar Awards, but it's for the director's award. Um, and I wasn't invited, obviously. Um, but I get a call later on from Jackie saying, I'm with, look, I'm in the car with the agent, uh, my agent, and um, Harvey Weinstein's having a party up in the Hollywood Hills, and, and I can invite you if I, if I like, and can you come? And I said, that'd be great. And I said, I'm at the hotel room. She said, do you have a dinner suit? And I said, well, no, I don't. She said, do you have a, a tie? I said, look, I have, I have, a, dark, I have a dark suit and, and a white shirt. And she said, that'll do. And she said, when we get this, just walk in with me. Just don't stop. So we get to this party with all Bradley Cooper and all this, uh, Jennifer Lawrence, all the stars are all there. And I walk in and get non-challenged and sit down. And I'm being fussed over by this gay waiter like you wouldn't believe. And Jackie said, do you know what's going on here? And I said, well, obviously not, you know, you're Hollywood, I'm not, I have no idea. But he kept fussing over us and filling out drinks and coming back, do you want something to eat? And she said, think it through. She said, you're the only person here not wearing a bow tie. Therefore, you must be bloody important and you can probably get him, get him an acting job. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that same night, I'm at the bar and I wasn't drinking and I, uh, I went to order a, a, a um, lemon, lime and bitters. And you get lemon there, you don't know if it's going to be lemonade or seven up or whatever. And they do not know what bitters are. So I'm struggling with this. And the woman next to me orders a drink. And I said, What are you drinking? She said, I'm having um, some cranberry juice with club soda and a slice of lime. And I said, That sounds nice. I'll, I'll give that a try. And I did. And I said, If it's any good, I'll take it back to Australia and I'll name it after you. And that's why at Reva, they serve a drink called a Jennifer Lawrence, because well. that's who it was. <laughs> Did you get to meet Harvey Weinstein? Uh, no, I didn't. I saw him from a distance. Uh, and I talk, when, when the whole scandal broke, I asked Jackie about it because he, he produced um, Silver Linings Playbook. And I said, what do you know about this? And she said, to be honest, she said, I'll tell you if it's true, I never heard a whisper about him. She said, all the time, I didn't see anything inappropriate and more so, I didn't hear a whisper about him. Uh, so that was that. What was it about Jackie, Darren, that you uh, you fell in love with? Because you did marry her twice, if I Well, look, it's a bit remember. of a myth I married her twice because well, that's what Wikipedia says. But we actually got married once and then we recommitted our vows in Hawaii. And I, I Josh with her now and say, hey, I think I've still got a marriage certificate in America that, that's never been annulled. So you better tell your husband that you and I are still married. <laughs> uh, look, she has, a, she's, has an immense IQ. Uh, she's one of the funniest people in the world um she's very loyal and uh and she's gorgeous i mean she and she's infectious and she's never changed i mean in hollywood she's still gosh golly gee you know she'll ring me up and say i've got my own caravan you know as if she didn't believe she's everybody gets gets their caravan um and she's so clever i mean she spent like for 10 years she was persona non grata in australian movies I mean, she loved the stage and did a lot of great stage work, but she was overlooked for movie roles until Animal Kingdom came up 
and then that was um, uh, David Michaud who, who wrote it. Um, he said, "If I, I, I'm having trouble getting the funding, but I'm not making it unless you're available. So it, they didn't make it for seven years, and they all did it for very little money, and it went, then they all went off to, um, to Sundance, the festival, and uh, they'd all left heading home, and only one tech was still there when they won the Sundance Award. And then she almost, then she nominated for an Oscar for it, for, for An Animal Kingdom. And when they're making, um, the director of um, Silver Linings, he went to one of those, uh, uh, what do you call it, Camelot sort of parties at the White House that the Kennedys used to throw. And Obama threw one and they'd invite Barbara Streisand and people and actors. And he said to the producer, the director, he said, what are you doing now? He said, oh, I'm making a, um, a movie in Philly with uh, Brad Cooper and uh, De Niro, an Australian actress called Jackie Weaver. And, and Obama said, Jackie Weaver? He said, I loved her in Animal Kingdom. And when he passed that on, he had a scraper off the roof, you know, so that, the, that Obama had known. And, and now she gets roles and roles and roles. And with the coronavirus shutdown, I think four of her films have been put on hold. So, But she lives in West Hollywood and she loves it. Is it, uh, is it true that Andrew Peacock was best man at your wedding yes, with Jackie? Yes, he was. Weaver. What's the connection with Andrew well, Peacock? I, I don't know. How we, we, I became friends with him when he was married to Margaret Peacock. Uh, and she was PR and she used to do a lot of work in radio. And she got into radio herself and I hired her for a while as a reporter on the Hinch program. Um, so Andrew and I got much closer through those years, through Margaret. Uh, and then I think I convinced him to marry Margaret because uh, I just married Jackie. I was marrying Jackie. And, uh, and he, he was his best man. Um, but ironically, even though we were friends on radio, and you can vouch for this, I would always call him Mr. Peacock, uh, Mr. Prime Minister, even if I knew people. And if they called me by my, say, call me by my first name, I wouldn't. I mean, I, I, I thought it was a bad form, and he's one of my favourite people, but when Ray Martin hosted, uh, I think, a Peacock-Hawk uh, debate, mm. he'd say, Bob this and Andrew that, and I don't know. Yeah, I've always had the respect of always recording Mr. Prime Minister or, or, or Mr. So-and-so. Andrew Peacock never became Prime Minister. No, there was a the tussle so with John Howard and Andrew yeah, Peacock. Yeah, Howard then became Prime Minister for a long term. Yeah. Andrew well, Peacock I missed when, out. Two things with, with Peacock was that he... Um, I remember uh, when he didn't get there and got, got overthrown, he said about did you wish to be Prime Minister? And he said, I wonder if I ever did. And he rolled his eyes. And rolled up, his yeah. eyes. But I was actually anchor for seven the night that, of the Hawke-Peacock uh, election day. Six hours, you didn't move from the seat. It was a tough job. But um, they they'd had about a six-week campaign because Hawke thought he was a great campaigner. And Peacock nearly knocked him off. Um, we didn't know the result of that election until the next Thursday. Hard to believe now, isn't it? But from Sunday night till Thursday, we packed it in at one o'clock in the morning on, on one o'clock Sunday morning, that election night. And it was the, 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 the ultimate cliffhanger. And Peacock came within a smidgen because Bob, Bob did do, I mean, it was a great campaigner, but people were just sick of the campaign. You know, was going, and and, uh, and so, so that was that. Was that. Um, we'll do a podcast, Darren, about the prime ministers that you've spoken mm-hmm. to. But just quickly on uh, on Bob Hawke, uh, you interviewed him quite Many a few times. times. Yeah, uh, yeah. How did you find him? Well, the irony I was, that, as I said, I interviewed every prime minister since Menzies, the only journalist to ever do it, except for one, 
and that's Scott Morrison. I interviewed him as treasurer and as minister of immigration. And one day recently, or last year, he said, Darren, we must do that just to keep the, the record going. And of course, then I got elected out and never did. Um, so yeah, I'd love to do one on prime ministers down the track. Bob Hawke, he was a funny guy. He's, oh, he's infectious, as we all know. But with me on 3AW, he'd, uh, he'd, if he got angry, it was me. He'd go from Darren to Derek to Daryl deliberately, right? And I remember once I'd say to him, I said to him, I can, I can wear your sarcasm, Mr. Prime Minister. He'd, well, I hope you bloody well can, you know, because I'd said something he didn't like. But yeah, I hope you bloody well can, Daryl. Well, I, I remember you had a go at him about money found in a suitcase in Sydney at some stage oh, yes, in, in 1980, yes. prior to him becoming Prime Minister. Yes. yes. Uh, and look, his links with Sir Peter Abels yeah, as Peter well. Abel, I, look, I don't know all the background to all that now, but... The fact that there was weird, a lot of cash in his room, um, and the, 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 one of the theories was later on it came out that his daughter Rosalind was a severe drug addict, that possibly the money either came from that or that she stole it from that. One, I don't know, but there was a murky world about that, about the money. And, because he was very close to Peter Abels, who was a fairly of dubious character, to the extent that after he was Prime Minister, he had a... Um, a suite of offices, I think, for free in William Street in Peter Abel's um, office, office building. Some of the uh, other people, Darren, that you've had a connection with, Jack Nicholas, the Golden oh, Bear, the wonderful golden bear. Look, golfer. I, I used to, the Australian golfer called um, Bruce Devlin, right? He was a great Australian golfer. And I, we had ghostwriters in those days for columns, and I used to ghostwrite Bruce Devlin uh, for a column. And, and I covered the Masters and the US Open and all that, and at those golf tournaments, I would... Um, I would uh, go write a column, get the ideas from Bruce and write a column. You don't seem to me a golfing sort of person. Oh, well, my dad played golf all the time. I played occasionally. Uh, and it was just great coverage. I mean, you get to walk around a lot and outdoors. And uh, on this occasion, two things happened, I remember, with Nicholas. I walk into the locker room with one of those Access All Area press passes, and somebody hears my, um, uh, hears my accent and says, hey, would you like a beer? I'd like a beer, Aussie. And he handed me a beer and his Arnold Palmer. And I thought, wow, this is something. I'm a young Aussie journo. And that night, I'm, about to, I'm doing, running late with my column from Bruce Devlin. He said, hey, Darren, he said, we're running late. I've got to go to a barbecue at Jack's place. Come with me and we'll do it in the car. So he invites me to Jack's place for a barbecue. And it's Jack Nicholas on the barbecue cooking the steaks. And we're pinching myself and sitting there. And I, I was so in awe these times. I got Bruce Devlin's green and white golf shoes and mailed them home to my dad, who wore them at the golf course in New Zealand, whether they fit him or not. But this night, I remember Jack Nicholas was saying to these steaks are beautiful, we're saying. These are just beautiful. He said, yeah, he said, I get them flown in from Chicago. He said, um, and they're not bad in price, not too bad. They only cost like $180 a kilo or two kilos or something. And I'm sitting, I was choked on the meat because I'm earning $180 a week, you know. <laughs> and he's going on about this, 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 these wonderful, wonderful steaks. But uh, covering the golf was, was great because you got to go to the great golf courses all around America. So you, you remember doing what, uh, British Open? Uh, uh, no, no, the, only the American ones. The, yeah. the US Open, uh, the Masters. The Masters, the Masters was the big one, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. yeah, and then there was, the, there was a PGA Championship of some other sort used to be. But the two biggest ones were the Masters and the US Open. And the, and the Masters always, of course, in Augusta, Georgia. Uh, but the others moved around to different different course every year. I have a son, Darren, who's a Rocky freak. Is it what? A, a Rocky, Rocky freak. freak. Oh, yeah. He watches all the Rocky movies. Uh, Sylvester Stallone. Sylvester Stallone. Well, Rocky won. 
still, I think it was Rocky One when uh, it was just Rocky, it was called. Stallone, Stallone came to Australia to promote the film. And I was doing the Hinch program uh, on television on Seven. And uh, by the time he got to the Hinch program, he'd done all interviews everywhere, he'd done a news conference, he'd, and I thought, how are we going to do something different here to make it not look stale because he's been talking to everybody? So I came up with the idea to his publicist that why don't I let him host the program and I'll sit in the guest seat and we'll do it in reverse. And they agreed. And so we, we get there and we're having a chat in the, in the makeup room and we're all very friendly and all very happy and all went very well. And, uh, and then um, we get them to start the show and he's doing well. And we're about 10, 11 minutes into the program and the, uh, we go to a commercial break. And uh, Stallone says to me through the commercial break, how am I doing? How am I doing? I said, you're doing fine. You're doing really, really fine. It's great. It's great. And he looks at me and he says, where does it go to air? <laughs> and I said, what? He said, when does this go to air? I said, it's on air. You've been live for the last 12 minutes. And the commercial break ends and he comes back on and he stutters and stumbles and bumbles and falls apart because... They're not used to doing stuff live, and I, I laughed at it. But it, 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 was, it was good value. It was good fun. Uh, how did you get the job in the Wog Boy movie? Because um, well, that's Nick a Ch- pretty iconic part. Well, Nicky, there. ironically now people say, oh, Darren, I say, how do you even know me to young guys you know, in their 20s? How do you even know me? And they say, oh, you loved you in the Wog Boy. You know, I loved you in the Wog Boy. And, uh, and uh, Nick Giannopoulos just asked me to do it and play myself. Uh, and I remember I just had my head shaved for $25,000 for charity, so my hair is about half an inch long. And it's ironically, it's the first time I've ever said shame, shame, shame in that movie because Visard did shame, Darren, shame, or shame, shame, shame in uh, Fast Forward or etc. The closest I'd ever come was when I interviewed Malcolm Fraser and about Cambodia, and he just I said, why do we recognise Pol Pot in the United Nations? Was to appease China. He said, "Look, that's the way it is." Then looking down his nose, that's the way it is. And I said, "Well, shame, Australia, shame." And uh, that went from there. But in the Wog Boy movie, I grabbed a pen and I said to Nick, "This is, I rewrote. I wrote shame, shame, shame into the script." I said, "I've been blamed for it for twenty years. I might as well say it." Which leads me to probably the, the one star that I left out, probably the most famous one of all, and that's Princess Diana. And when she came to Australia with Prince Charles. Uh, I was president of the Variety Club, and they, the Variety Club was the hosted the world premiere of Burke and Wills, the movie at which Chuck and I went to. And as president of the Variety Club, I escorted them. And I didn't know about the anorexia and uh, stories, but I remember getting out of the car behind her, walking in behind her, and she had on a low-cut black dress, uh, uh, the low cut of the back. And I remember counting her, counting her vertebrae, thinking, she's your thin. Because I always remember that voluptuous shot that was shot, set around the world early in her relationship with Jack, with Charlie. And, and there was this, I thought I did, her back looked so, so thin, so skinny. But anyway, I met her three times in three days because a couple of nights later, we were at a, a function at Government House and they were the guests of honour and I was there. And uh, they, as they walk into the room, they always do it. The Queen and Philip used to do it too. They split, one goes one side of the room, one goes the other, and they work half the room. And if, if you don't get the one you want, you don't get the one you want. And somehow, Philip Adams and I end up standing alone talking to Princess Di. And I had no idea what to talk to her about. You know? And uh, finally, Philip says, and what do you watch on television, ma'am? And I'll never forget this. She said, 
oh, and the little girly voice she has, she said, um, oh, she said, uh, I watched Dallas and Dynasty, which were big hits back then. I watched Dallas and Dynasty. She said, I love to see how the other half live. And I couldn't help it. I said, you are the other half. <laughs> and it went shoom, straight over her head. But it was the funniest thing to have somebody of royalty suddenly saying, I love to see how the other half live. Where, was, where were you, Darren, when you found out or what were the circumstances of you finding out that she'd been involved in a car accident and that she and died. had died? I was at my farm at Mount Macedon alone and the first reports coming through were a bit obscure and you sort of guessed it was Princess Di and then, then it came through. It was from memory, by the time we got the news that she was dead, it was late morning about lunchtime, um, Australian time and I remember... Um, uh, going up to the local pub and telling people there, and people didn't believe it, you know. And, and I mean, the, the monarchy nearly fell over that because, I mean, you've to- seen the movies about it now, but Tony Blair sort of went up to Balmoral and said, virtually, get your asses back t- to London or you won't have a, a monarchy to-, to preserve because I think Philip was saying she's no longer a royal. I mean, they didn't want Charles to go to Paris and pick up her body, you know. But in the end, like they weren't even gonna, they weren't even flying the flag at half mast because that was only done for the Queen, etc. Um, so it, it came very close and it reminded me. You, everybody remembers where they were that day. You also, if you're old enough, you remember where you were the day that um, John Kennedy died, and it was early morning. It was 1.30 or something, one something around p.m. Friday, their time, and it was uh, um, five, early o'clock in the morning, our time. I was on early police rounds for the Sydney Sun, and uh, I get to uh, the office, and I, I'm told, you know, Kennedy's dead. Um, I think a lot of people thought that, thought it was Graham Kennedy because he was so famous. But uh, my job, I mean, in those days, you had to try it. And my job, given you by the news editor, was try and call the Prime Minister, get the Prime Minister. So I call, um, I call um, the lodge in Canberra and he wasn't there. So I call Kirribilli House. This is about, by this stage, about 6.30 in the morning. I call Kirribilli House and believe it or not, in those days, I got through. And Menzies answered the phone. And I said, oh, Mr. Prime Minister, I, um, I'm sorry to disturb you, but uh, I don't know if you're aware yet, but I've got some, uh, uh, the news that um, President Kennedy is dead. There's a pause in those very deep Ming voice, you know, Menzies' voice. He says, uh, oh, thank you very much, and hung up. But I could go back to the news editor and say, he said, did you talk to the Prime Minister? And I said, yes. I didn't get anything, but at least I, I had talked to the Prime Minister and done the job I had, to, had meant to do. You know. But everybody remembers those two, those two days in their lives. Uh, one other person that I want to ask you about, because I remember you doing the interview with him, the Dalai Lama. Um, How Dal- did you find him? Well, um, fantastic. Uh, I've talked to the Dalai Lama four times. I saw him when I was a senator. I went to uh, I le- led a delegation to uh, to India to meet up with him and and, and some Indian politicians. Um, we weren't allowed to say it was a parliamentary delegation because that would upset the Chinese because of the Tibet situation. But it's called a, a parliamentary dele- a delegation of parliamentarians. Um, my first time met him was very funny because. He came to Australia in the 1990s, and uh, they uh, and I was on television, and they said they accepted he'd be, he'd be interviewed by Richard Carlton or George Negus or Jan Event or Ray Martin, and apparently I heard from the PR lady later. He said, "No, no, no, no." He had quite a high-pitched voice actually. He said, "No, no, no." He said, uh, "I want to talk to the bearded one." And they said, "What? Someone talk to the bearded one?" And they said, "No, you don't." 
But anyway, I did, he did get to talk to the bearded one, and uh, and we had a good interview. And at the end of it, one of his aides gave me a white silk scarf of the Dalai Lamas. And when I walked out, people were like, wow, you've met the Dalai Lama. All these, these Buddhists, and they were in awe of somebody who spent time with the Dalai Lama. And so it was before um, emails, but I said to people, drop me a note, and I'll send you a piece of the Dalai Lama's scarf. And so I went home, not being an atheist, I went home and I chopped the scarf up in little pieces and mailed it off to Buddhists, you know, like a bit of the Turin Shroud. And uh, anyway, next time I interviewed him was about five years later. And I got the interview again with the Dalai Lama, this time uh, I think it was in Sydney. And um, we had a lovely interview and it went very well. And at the end of it, at the very end of the interview, he had, a, he had a very good sense of humour. He had a twinkle in his eye and he leaned forward and took the scarf off his own neck and draped it around mine. And I said, oh, thank you. And he said, don't cut this one up. <laughs> don't cut this one up, he said. How he knew, I don't know, but somebody had filled him in that, uh, that I'd chopped up his scarf. So, but he, he, was, he was fascinating. I mean, he told me once he could be the last Dalai Lama because his successor has never been seen. He was captured by the Chinese when he was about three and is now in his 20s, I would say, in, um, in university in, in, in Beijing. And, uh, and whether they allow him to become... Or, or the Buddhists won't accept him um, as, as the replacement. Uh, and so uh, it's, it is possible that he could be an, uh, the, last, the last Dalai Lama. Darren Hinch, thank you again for your time today. We shall talk again soon.